to the second episode of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your warm and affable host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. So glad you could join us for our discussion about episodes two and three, Full Fathom Five and Strangers in Our Own Land. Now, I don't know if you noticed this in the first episode of the podcast. Um, if you haven't listened to it, go back, listen to it, come back here. But I don't get too technical when it comes to my discussion of the episodes. I don't know dick about filmmaking. I couldn't tell you anything about camera angles. Thing is, is if I notice something, I'll bring it up. But otherwise, I'm, I don't have that skill set. This is a casual conversation. I talk about whatever grabs my fancy. And that's usually something inappropriate. I'm also going to try to point out the intentionally funny moments that are scripted in the episodes. I think the show is re- remembered for being very serious, sort of like Dragnet is remembered for being very serious. There's actually a lot of, they actually do have a lot of funny moments that they put in to help break the tension. I'm going to try to point those out whenever I can. It's also worth mentioning that I had some technical difficulties getting the sound clips for the two episodes. Um, and. I was too lazy to redo them. So you might notice they're a little glitchy in places. Also, uh, one of the sound clips in the second episode that's discussed, Strangers in Our Own Land, there is a bird, a very loud bird in during that sound clip. I just wanna say, that's the show, that's not me. I have very loud birds outside, but this bird is, is 100% the show. I'm not gonna let my birds take the blame for that one. Okay, enough about my birds. Let's go to Hawaii. Say I'll pound big. Full fathom five, the widow lies. And of her bones are coral made. Those are pearls that were her eyes. Nothing of her now doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Sea nymphs hourly ring her knell. Hark, now I hear them. Ding-dong bell. Episode 2, Full Fathom 5, air date September 26, 1968, directed by Richard Benedict, and he'll direct 11 episodes for the series, and written by Ken Kolb. Uh, Kevin McCarthy and Louise Troy play a married couple that prefers to pass themselves off as brother and sister because it's much easier to run their con of swindling rich women out of large amounts of cash and then murdering them and disposing of their bodies out to sea. Five-O gets wind of their serial killing swindle uh, when they're looking for a another woman named Martha Finch on behalf of her attorney and it's while looking for her that they come up with the uh, missing women whose bodies are never found and the very uh, their very similar disappearances. All of the women are between 30 and 50. They're single. They have no immediate family. There's no trace left of them at all. They're all missing and they all transferred large amounts of money before disappearing and in some cases their disappearances weren't reported for months because they have no close relatives. Happily, Martha Finch is found alive and well and living with hippies, but Stephen and Five-O decide to pursue this serial killing angle, 
once the latest victim is reported missing, they find that they have all of the victims have one thing in common. They all took cruise ships from the mainland to Hawaii, and on each cruise, there is one common passenger, a man named Victor Rollins. They find out that he's booked on the next ship to Hawaii, and so Steve intends to put both Dano, who will be there to watch how he runs his operation, and an HPD officer by the name of Joyce Weber on the boat. Joyce is going to play bait. So from then on, it's basically a cat and mouse between Five O and Vic and Nora. On the cruise ship, we see uh, Victor uh, get information about Joyce's character from another passenger. He then proceeds to break into his break into her stateroom and then fabricate a meeting with her by claiming to have found something she lost. So while he's talking to her, Dano goes through his stateroom and finds uh, some pills, a gun, and a shirt with a laundry marker on it in Chinese. They use all of these things to find out that his last name is actually Reese and that his supposed sister is his wife. And the cat and mouse continues on the mainland as uh, Joyce does whatever she can to try to ferret out out information from Victor and Nora uh, while 5-0 is working, trying to look for any kind of evidence they can use against them. But the problem is is that they keep coming up clean. It's all up to Joyce. And when good old Vic uh, finally makes his play for the money, we all know that Joyce's time left is limited. So this is the first hour-long episode, the first regular episode after the the two-hour pilot. I think it does a wonderful job of introducing us to how the show is going to go. The pilot is a little bit off the charts, and we will get some of that off-the-chartedness throughout the series, but this is a nice... um, Solid, stable episode to start with. Uh, This is the first episode where we have uh, James MacArthur as Danny Williams. Uh, This is the first episode we see Richard Denning as the governor. The first episode that we see Maggie Parker as May. So it's setting up. This is going to be our cast. Nobody else really changed. So this is going to be our cast. We get to learn a little bit more about our cast. Not so much with um, any personal details but how our characters interact. When they're discussing how uh, Martha Finch's disappearance with her lawyer there, Skaggs, you see how they interact and how they work and kind of what their roles are and, and you know how they, they're looking into information. And, and you see how thorough they are, how professional they are, how skilled they are. And um, you get a real feel for the team in just that, that one scene. It's also a clever way to introduce us to our villains because when the when the episode opens we get to watch Vic and Nora work their magic on their latest victim poisoning her they're they're it's so funny because they're a delightful and charming couple outside of the the villainy and the murder and it's it's fun to watch them interact because you know they've just killed this woman and they're rather callous towards her in the sense that you know, it's like, God, she talked all the way up into the last breath. It, she was so boring, you know. It's, it's So it's kind of fun to see them being a little bit catty and also being sort of charming at the same time. So when you're 
basically when we're cat and mousing this throughout the whole episode and you're watching Joyce play up against them and watching, you know, Five O trying to find a way to nail them, you're at least enjoying their the on screen time with them. And they really are they're they really are a very wonderful, lovely couple. They have several cute little moments together. At one point, they're at the airport because he's got to fly to the mainland so he can take this cruise back. And Nora, you know, tells Vic, because he's like this, you know, Vic tells her, you know, it's very boring. And she's like, well, perhaps there'll be a good movie, you know, on the flight. And, you know, and tells him, you know, you need to to watch the pate. Uh, You put on two pounds the last cruise. And he he thinks it's sweet that she fusses after him like that. And she's like, well, you know, I don't care, but... It's, you know, your your appearance is very important to the business. So they have these really very sweet, loving, um, charming interactions, and yet they murder people for a living. That's their job. So it's fun, it's fun to watch the watch Five-O take on a, a villainous couple like this, especially in the first episode, first regular episode. We also get some good dynamic moments um, within the team because um, Steve is... Steve recruits Joyce to do this undercover work because she's really good at her job. But Danny knows her and knows her two little kids. And he's really, really uncomfortable with putting her in this position where she could possibly get hurt or killed. And there's a great back and forth moment between Steve and Danny where it really does establish their relationship and it establishes what kind of boss that Steve is. That Steve takes his job very seriously. He wants everybody else to take their jobs very seriously. He only wants the best. And there's certain times when, you know, you can't be soft about it. What do we use for bait? But a nice young rich widow. That's Joyce. Yeah, do you know her? Sure I know her. And her two little kids. You can't hand her this kind of an assignment, Steve. Why not? Because it's too risky. Policewoman Joyce Weber, last seven years on Bunko Squad HPD. Outstanding record, dozen citations. Sound qualified? Of course she is, that's not the point. We screened at least a dozen possibilities with Chief Dan. She's the one, the best. I don't like it. Nobody asked you. But then there's also later in the episode when he, he finally gets to talk to Joyce because after she gets on the mainland because... She hasn't been able to contact them due to the fact that Vic and Nora are always with her. Um, and he finally is able to get in contact with her. He uh, he offers to pull her out at that point. If she thinks it's getting too hot or she doesn't want to do it anymore, he gives her that out. But she doesn't, of course, take it. As for Joyce, Joyce is played by Patricia Smith. And I she does a magnificent job as Joyce. I love Joyce. First of all, I love her voice. She has a wonderful voice. But Joyce is, uh, she's very good at what she does. She knows she's very good at what she does. And she's cool, calm, and collected throughout most of the episode. But you can see that there are moments where she's a little bit nervous or she gets a little rattled or she's, you know, not, you know, she's a little uncertain. But she she never, there's no flailing. There's never any flailing. She is a professional policewoman. I love that they did this. This is 1968. You didn't see this very often. You didn't see female cops very often. And you definitely didn't see them in situations like this. But they did this for the first regular episode of the season. I love that. 
I love I love that 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 they went with that. Also, between Joyce and Nora, we are treated to a fashion show of shift dressed shift dresses and uh, mumus. They are just there are some gorgeous prints and colors happening. At uh, one point, Joyce wears a, a yellow and white polka dotted shift dress. She wears a bright green dress. Um, there's just, there's some glorious patterns. Nora has magnificent jewelry. Between these two women, it's, it's, it's truly a fashion show. On the other hand, this show does set, this episode sets the precedent for the show that when the guys are undercover, they're going to wear hideous shirts. McGarrett possibly wears one of the ugliest Hawaiian shirts I have ever seen until an episode of Magnum P.I. where one of the characters was wearing like a purple and lime green Hawaiian shirt that was so loud I got tinnitus. Um, it truly is hideous. Steve's shirt truly is hideous. It's so bad that um, even Danny has to remark on it. Anyway, so yes, um, there's also a great moment when um, Vic and Joyce are going back to Joyce's hotel room to say goodnight, and there's some awkwardness there, which Joyce dismisses as being it's been a long time because she's the backstory they've created for her character is that she uh, she's been widowed and uh, for about a year, and so that's how she covers the awkwardness. But it's great because when when Vic kisses her, she makes a fist like to show how just absolutely disgusted that she is with this. And I really loved that little that little detail. I also love that how Five-O can't get anything on, on Vic and Nora. They can't get any evidence on them. And Joyce even can't really get anything solid on either one of them in her interactions with them. Because it, it really does uh, up the stakes. Because Danny is pretty insistent at points that he really wants to pull Joyce out because it's just getting too dangerous and that there's that whole thing of they don't have enough evidence if they pull her out now they've got nothing. So it's a nice way to to keep the keep the stakes rising just a little bit and keep that tension going. Now I said that I would point out in these episodes when there are humorous moments because this show is is overall it's it's very serious in tone the episodes are very serious but um they do use humor to help break the tension, and they do it in, in surprising ways. It's not always one-liners, though we do get several of those. But for example, in this scene, when they do find Martha Finch, they find her safe and sound, living with a bunch of hippies at the beach. And her lawyer is completely aghast at this because she's rich. Why in the world would she be living with these hippies? when she has money and what about her money and why won't she make more money and he like flips out about this and she's just you know she's like you're fired get out of here I don't want to make money for you anymore it's gonna take me forever to spend the money I have I'm fine I'm happy you know for now this is this is fine and the best part about this whole scene is that Steve and Danny are not interfering at all with this and you can see in the background, Steve's actually really amused by this whole interplay. And it is quite funny, especially at the end when Martha just dif- dismisses her lawyer. And then she asks Danny if she, he can give her a ride to town because she needs to meet with her shrink. She also introduces her lawyer to her new business manager, who's Pepito. And she says she found him in a tree. Pepito is a guitar player. So it's actually a very amusing scene in considering, you know, it's we think she might be one of the victims of Vic and Nora. She turns out she's not and she's fine. It's a nice little pressure release 
and uh, a pretty amusing scene. Oh, and speaking of Martha Finch, at the beginning when they're coming up empty on leads for where she might be, Steve tells Kono, you know, use your imagination if you were a rich white woman what would you do and where would you go? And Kono says something to the fact that he's like, that's going to take a whole lot of imagination. There's also a scene that's kind of funny, but it's also, it kind of plays a little too heavily on stereotypes. Um, when Danny radios from the cruise ship and gives them information about the gun and the Chinese laundry mark, Kono goes to run the gun and Steve asks Chin Ho if he, what he knows about Chinese laundries and he jokingly says, you know, some of my best ancestors were Chinese. And then he ends up looking at the mark and goes, oh, well, this is a job for my uncle. And he takes it to his uncle who runs a Chinese laundry. And his uncle gives him the information that he needs about it. And it's while it's amusing, it's also a little bit, you know, it, it depends a little bit on stereotypes. So it's kind of a guilty chuckle. It also illustrates to you that um, between Kono and Shin Ho, they either know everyone or they're related to everyone on the island, or at least it just feels like they do. So yeah, this is a this is a good episode. It's a fun episode. Um, we have some interesting villains. We get to know our Five O group. The thing is, is like between. I always say that you should watch the first three episodes of a series because you get the pilot. The pilot's always going to be over, over the top. You get the first episode of the series, so you see what's changed between pilot and series. And then when you watch that third episode, that's going to really kind of uh, ground you as to uh, how this, ep- what you know, what the groove is, what the vibe is of the series is going to be. We really get a lot of that right here from the second episode. This is what you can rely on. We're going to have some interesting villains. The stories are going to be um, the way we're presented with the villains and how the the investigation and how the story plays out is going to be interesting. It's going to take some twists, some turns that we're not maybe used to or not expecting. And, and we're going to enjoy the ride. We're going to enjoy how everything plays out because there's going to be there's going to be stakes, there's going to be tension, there's going there's there's going to be drama. But in the end, Steve and company, they're going to get their man, or in this case, loving murderous couple. Okay, let's take a quick look at the guest cast. So as I said, uh, Victor is played by Kevin McCarthy. We actually will see him in one more episode after this, playing a different character. But he's probably best known for uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He was in, he was a main character in the 1956 version, and he had a cameo in the 1978 version. He was also in Piranha, The Howling, The Twilight Zone movie. Um, he was in an episode of Twilight Zone, uh, Wild Wild West, The Rifleman, Cannon, Murder She Wrote, Golden Girls 18. You have seen him somewhere, I guarantee it. He is wonderful. I love him. He's always a joy. Uh, Nora was played by Louise Troy. She's been in a few things. Uh, guest spots on Barnaby Jones, Canon, Hogan's Heroes, and she was actually married to Colonel Clink. She was married to Warner Klimperer from 1969 to 1975. Martha Finch's lawyer, Tyler Skaggs. He was played by Philip Pine. We'll actually see him in two more episodes. 
he's no stranger to Hawaii because he was um, also on Hawaiian Eye and appeared uh, with a co-star from Hawaiian Eye, Robert Conrad, on Robert Conrad's next show, Wild Wild West. Uh, he also showed up in Perry Mason, Dick Van Dyke, Adam 12, Emergency, Police Story, The Rookies, Police Woman, Streets of San Francisco. He's been in a ton of stuff. You've probably seen him somewhere if you watch reruns at all. Martha Finch was played by Arlene McQuaid. Uh, she doesn't have really much to going on, but um, she was Rosalie Goldberg in a TV show called The Goldbergs. It was a live sitcom that debuted in January of 1949 and ran on CBS, NBC, and the Dumont Network. Our intrepid policewoman, Joyce Weber, as I said, is played by Patricia Smith. She was Charlotte Landers on the Debbie Reynolds show. She was also Margaret Hoover on the Bob Newhart show. And she played Sylvia Bales in the Long Distance Call episode of The Twilight Zone. June Dayton played Ruth Willoughby. She was the passenger that Vic was pumping information on Joyce from. Uh, she's been in Tora, 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 Perry Mason, Gunsmoke, Cannon, Streets of San Francisco, Little House on the Prairie. And she also shares a credit with Louise Troy. Uh, they, both women were in uh, the TV movie Crow Haven Farm. Louise Troy played Claire Allen, and June Dayton played Madeline Wardwell. This episode also marks the first appearance of Herman Wedemeyer. We will get to know him and love him uh, very well later in the series as he plays Duke. Uh, but he doesn't play Duke until season four. Before that, uh, in this episode and one more episode, he plays Lieutenant Balta. And then he'll have four other episodes where he plays different characters before he becomes Duke. Duke is one of the reasons why I fell in love with this show. So that's Full Fathom 5. It is. It's a great episode. It's uh, a good start to the series. It's a good start to the, the season. When I say start, I mean, you know, regular one-hour episodes and not two-hour wackadoodle crazy pilot movies. Check it out. You will not be disappointed. Man, that shirt's blinding me. So is the price. Any idea who did it? We're making some headway. You find whoever killed Nate, Mr. McGarrett. You find him. And when you do, don't arrest him. Don't put him in jail. You pin a medal on him, Mr. McGarrett. Episode 3, Strangers in Our Own Land, air date October 3rd, 1968, directed by Herschel Daughtry, story by John Knubel, teleplay by John Knubel and Herman Groves, Grooves, apologies Herman, my handwriting is atrocious, but Herman will be with us for five episodes, and Herschel Daughtry directed a total of five episodes. So Land Commissioner Nathan Manu blows up in front of the airport, quite literally actually, because someone tosses a bomb disguised in a briefcase, concealed in a briefcase, into his taxi. A witness by the name of Grace Willis claims to have caught the perpetrator on film because she was filming with a, an 8mm camera. So Steve talks to the governor because not only is this an unofficial but it's also uh, a very good friend of the governor's and the governor 
can't imagine anybody wanting to hurt Nathan Manu because he was a very well-liked man. Uh, didn't seem to have an enemy in the world. He was very good at being a land commissioner, all of this. But he did receive a cable from him saying that he needed to discuss something urgently with him. And he was coming back from San Diego early to do so. And as far as the governor and Steve know, the governor was the only one knew, that knew he was coming back early. So Steve talks to Manu's widow, and then he talks to Manu's best friend, Ben Kalua. And Ben isn't exactly sad that his buddy is dead, because as far as he's concerned, as land commissioner, he's done nothing but betray Hawaii by allowing all of these land developments to happen, and all of these uh, hotels to be built, and all of that sort of thing. So he has a, a real mixed feelings about his friend's death. He also claims to not know the suspect when Steve shows a picture of him to him. Steve's called back to 5-0 because a gentleman by the name of Lester Willoughby is confessing to Manu's murder. And when Steve and Dano grill him about it, they end up tripping him up on the details. And it reveals that he's actually just a guy in the midst of a, a midlife crisis and sort of having a nervous breakdown. Chin Ho finds an address for our suspect, Tommy Capali. When Steve goes to talk to him, he's not home, but he instead talks to his mother, who is wonderful and mostly uncooperative. But Steve still manages to find out that Tommy was in the army. Tommy has been sick in the head, according to his mother, and he works construction for a guy named Milner out at Pearl City. So when Steve goes to look for uh, Tommy Capali there, the construction boss says that he's been fired for being a hothead, uh, and then this guy Milner uh, confirms this, but he still provides Steve with an address, and I really, really don't like Milner, and we'll talk about that later. When Steve and the rest of 5-0 go to the address provided by Milner, they find Tommy Capali dead of an apparent suicide. They find him hanging. So it looks like everything's all wrapped up nice and neat. We have a hothead who didn't like the development happening. Um, he was in the military. He got kicked out for mental issues. He um, worked in ordnance, bomb disposal. The bomb was created by a grenade attached to two sticks of dynamite. The dynamite seems to have been stolen from the construction site that he worked at. Um, it all wraps up nice and neat for everyone but Steve because there is one thing that bothers him, and that is how did this young Hawaiian kid know that Manu was coming back to the island from San Diego early? And so he ends up, he and the team end up reviewing the footage that was given to them by Grace Willis, and there they find the clue that they've been missing all along, and when Steve starts pulling that thread, everything unravels. And I love the way that it unravels. This is this is a great one where you start pulling on threads and they start piecing things together. It's really great. But I'm not going to go into detail about that because I don't want to spoil you. I want you to have that enjoyment for yourself. In the meantime, we can discuss other aspects of this episode. So the thing about the series is that they used locations a lot. I think the only sets that they used... Um, like for the offices and stuff so most of the stuff they did was filmed on location and so we have a nice storyline about where they're filming about the development that's happening 
And it, it shows uh, the differing ideals between the native Hawaiians and the white people that, you know, kind of moved in and took over the island. Because at this point, uh, 1968, I think Hawaii had only been a state for not even 10 years yet. But it America had laid claim to it for longer than that. But there's still, there's a lot of um, development happening. There was a lot of, um, they were, you know, it, the continuation of turning it into a tourist attraction was happening. And there was a lot of bitterness about that. It probably still is. So it was really nice to have an episode that addresses that to a certain extent. You also have the nice twist of having everybody say really nice things about Nathan Manu, and then you get to his best friend, and he basically says that uh, when you catch whoever killed him, you should pin a medal on him, because his friend is very anti-development. Ben Kalu is very anti-development, and he he does. He feels that his his bestie there uh, has betrayed Hawaii uh, in the name of progress, in air quotes, and greed, and he gives a really emotional speech about that, reflecting. Um, the betrayal he feels, but also the love that he still has for his, his dead friend. Look, McGarrett, down there. Hotels, beaches, shops, tourists, glamour, money. Nate and I were born right there in Waikiki. When we were kids, there were a lot of Hawaiians there. Most of the places where the hotels are now, that was a big swamp with ducks. Nate and I played there, chasing the ducks and laughing all over the place. Kids. That was the Nate I loved. He was like my brother. Who was the Nate you hate enough to want to pin a medal on his murderer? There's an old Hawaiian saying, McGarrett. One day we shall be strangers in our own land. Nate loved the land until a few years ago. Then he changed. All of a sudden, he was all for those high-rise buildings and housing projects, condominiums, freeways. Never mind the Hawaiian and the land. Build the lousy cement and steel all the way up into the sky. Block out the sky on the mountains. Nate was all for that. He called that progress. That side of Nate, I hate it. The funny thing is, I want to go to that place where he's laying. I want to go to my best friend. I want to yell at him. You turned against your people, against the land, like a traitor. And at the same time, I... I want to grab him in my arms. And I want to say his name over and over. Nate. Nate. My friend, Nate. Now, our main suspect, Tommy Capali, is the only reason he's a suspect is because of these 8mm films that this woman, Grace Willis, was taking in the airport. I. What up, tourist? That's all I can think. Who takes pictures? Who takes video in the airport? Well, white tourist people. That's who does stupid things like that. Because there's a lot of... Because it's an interesting thing. Because it's just like, 
a clip shot of this and then a clip shot of this and then it, you know there's the clip shot of the girls with the lays and there was a clip shot she was taking pictures of the most random stuff in this airport how that didn't tip anybody off that perhaps there was something not quite right but you know what people do that people do take video and pictures of the most ridiculous stuff when they're on vacation and then they want you to sit and look through all of them should be declared a form of torture. But anyway, it's it's interesting to see that how the procedures that they go through, the police work that they go through in order to nail down who our suspect is and find his name and everything because, hey, they didn't have Google back then. So they're going to high schools to see if he's a high school graduate um, and they're circulating his picture around and things like that. Old school police work. They just can't plug his name, plug the picture into the to the internet and have the internet tell you. Now you could just like put it on Twitter and someone would be able to ID him for you. And then once he's ID'd, we have to, you know, they have to track him down. And so they go to his mother's house and his mother is just absolutely wonderful because she's, she's suspicious and she's a little bit dramatic and she's just, she's just so great. It's just so great. I and mean, when he, when Steve first arrives, she's napping in a chair on the front porch. You just know you're going to have the greatest interaction with her from the get go. But then they check out where he used to work and then they get the other address and then find him dead. And the thing about this is, is so we go through this entire episode, start to finish, we actually only see Tommy Capali in two situations. In the film, which has, we just see him walking by and when they find him dead, because we get the illusion that he's hanging. And by illusion, I mean because you see his legs but he's obviously like, you don't see his arms. If you hang yourself, typically your arms would also be dangling, but you don't see his arms. So it's like he's probably propped up on, I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but he's probably propped up, like holding himself up with his arms to give the illusion that he's hanging. And again, I don't know why I noticed that, but it bugs me. So back to what I was saying. We actually never get to know Tommy Capali anyway, but through other people. Similar to how we only get one interaction with Nathan Manu, which is at the very beginning, and we see him interact with like an airport porter and the uh, cab driver. It's very little interaction, but he sees an, seems to be a nice enough man, but we get conflicting um, we get conflicting reports about him. Everybody thinks he's great except for his bestie. So it's kind of interesting to have both of these these main figures in this episode, but we... but you know, everything we get from them is secondhand. It adds an interesting element, an interesting layer to the episode. I do want to mention our red herring, Lester Willoughby. The thing is, is that it could just have been easily played off as a throwaway red herring scene. Here's this guy in the office confessing to uh, killing Nathan Manu, and he gets a bunch of the details wrong because Steve and Daniel basically, they both kind of rapid fire at him asking questions, and they feed him wrong information that he then uses like as part of his confession. And it's a really great scene to watch them work together. It's a nice uh, relationship scene, I guess, to watch them work together and, and have them go at this guy to trip him up. And at the end of it, Steve's like, yeah, basically take him to the psychiatric ward. And the guy has a nervous breakdown saying, do you think I'm lying? I'm not really lying. He ends up, what he ends up kind of having a meltdown and then confessing that 
he's been he was a bookkeeper for so long and and he was nobody and he thought that he would make a better start here in the islands but he's still nobody and he just wanted to be somebody and basically basically was willing to confess to murder to have that happen and the thing is is that this could have been played off as a pretty straightforward distraction scene you know a red herring i mean it, but the performances particularly milton salser um, as lester willoughby there was so much emotional gravity to it that really grounded and when you get to that conclusion where he's basically burying his soul to these two cops that he doesn't even know instead of having these two cops basically you know dismiss him and write him off and think of him as some you know weak man you instead get a lot of sympathy you get compassion from from both Steve and Danny. It's very quiet compassion because you can see it kind of on their faces that they're watching this guy have a nervous breakdown in front of them. But at the end he asks Steve, he's like, don't you understand? When he After he makes this confession about how he just wanted to be somebody, he's like, do, do you understand? And Steve has this look on his face like, yes, I, I totally do. And so it it wasn't a typical, you know, red herring swerve moment. It could have been, but they didn't play it that way. It was actually a very nice, a very nice scene, the way it ended up playing out. And of course, I always endeavor, I said I would, I always endeavor to point out the funny moments. And there are a few in this episode, but the one that sticks out for me is, first of all, being a secretary for Steve McGarrett entails being like a den mother for everyone. You have to feed them, you have to water them, you have to field their phone calls and make sure they sign their paperwork. I imagine it's like being a mom, but there are fewer diapers to change. So um, at one point, Steve comes into the office in May, gives him a bunch of, uh, basically gives him an update on what, what's going on and gives him some stuff. And then she's like, oh, one more thing. And she hands him a hard-boiled egg and says, here, this is brunch. And Steve takes it into his office. Chin Ho comes into his office and gives him an update about something. And Steve leaves, and he leaves the egg on his desk, and Chin Ho looks around to make sure nobody's watching, and then he steals Steve's egg. Now, let's talk a little bit about David Milner, the construction guy, because I really, really don't like him. So when McGarrett goes to David Milner to get Tommy Capaldi's address, Milner backs up what the construction boss said, which is that he was a hothead, and he was very much so against progress. He, he even had the audacity to say that the Hawaiians owned the land. Can you imagine that the people who are native to that island would think the land belongs to them? And this is how I knew I wasn't going to like this jerk. Because if that isn't, you know, white supremacist colonizer talk. But it gets worse. He goes on to say that you can't keep treating these Hawaiians like children... And that you have to, uh, you know, educate them and, you know, they have to learn to use the land and make the land work for them because, you know, they probably weren't doing that for the hundreds of years before the white people showed up and probably doing it better than what the white people use it for. And then he goes on to say that, you know, I have never seen a race of people die out when they had jobs and money in the bank. Because people really do believe that, that the only progress that's possible, the only way to live is the white western way. And, you know, that 
of course this guy would be so up in arms that these people would like the land to, um, I don't know, be the way that it's been for centuries, generations, all of their lives, and, and ha it, it's worked fine with them, but you know, but it's that whole capitalistic Western philosophy that the only advancement, the only progress, the only measure of and the enlightenment of a society is how much money you have and how much how tall are your buildings so yeah i didn't care for for david milner and i thought he could easily go take a swim and never come back but you can understand where both tommy capali and uh ben kalua are coming from when you have people spouting rhetoric like this even mcgarrett was very much slow like um no he was pretty put off by this guy as well. I kind of hated him worse than the actual bad guy and he didn't even kill anybody. Moving on. This is a really great episode, despite my dislike for a particular character. Um, it really is because it keeps you captivated from the beginning to the end. I mean, when you start off with somebody blowing up in a taxi, you want to settle in and go along for this ride. And the fact that it changes when we most of the episode is spent in pursuit of Tommy Capali and when we hit that moment uh, where he's found dead, things change and now we're rapid pace unraveling a more complex mystery than what we thought. And it, it, really, it, it keeps you riveted until the end. It's possible you might be able to figure it out, but who cares? It's a great ride. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about the guest cast. Uh, Benny Kalua was played by Simon Oakland. Spoiler alert, Simon Oakland is not actually Hawaiian. I think he's Jewish. But the point is, is that um, it was, it's actually, you're gonna see it come up pretty frequently. White actors portraying people of color, particularly Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. And I will point it out every time I see it. But back to Simon Oakland. We'll see him uh, playing other characters in four more episodes. You've probably seen him in several things. He was in Psycho, West Side Story. Um, he had a recurring role as Inspector Spooner on a show called Toma. Tama? He was uh, Brigadier General Thomas Moore on Black Sheep Squadron. He was Sergeant Abrams in David Cassidy, Man Undercover. I've not seen this yet but I desperately need to get a hold of a copy of that series. He was Vern St. Cloud in a few episodes of The Rockford Files, and he was also probably best known as uh, Tony Vincenzo on Kolchak, The Night Starker. Lester Willoughby, a uh, red herring, he was played by Milton Seltzer. We'll see him uh, five more times, but he had a reoccurring role as Parker on Get Smart. He was on Perry Mason, That Girl, Barney Miller, Quincy, Trapper John, he's been in a lot of things if you've seen. If you watch reruns, you've probably seen him. Our widow, Mrs. Manu, she was played by Ann Barton. She was, she portrayed Cora Hudson in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Grace Willis, who provided us with the 8mm footage. She was played by Jean Bates. She was Nurse Wills on Ben Casey. She was also uh, Mrs. X in her eraser head. And she was in The Strangler with Victor Buono. The most detested David Milner. He was played by Paul Kent, who played Dennis Ranson in the Helter Skelter TV movie. He was also Dr. Carver in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. 
the construction boss Saunders, who was played by Milton Hibden. We will see him again in an episode later this season called Six Kilos. Ben Kalua's daughter, Leilani, she was played by Liana Petranik. Um, we will see her again in another episode called Bait Once, Bait Twice. Okay, Tommy Capali's mom, Mrs. Capali, is played by Hilo Hattie. Uh, she was a quite a famous hula dancer. Uh, she did kind of a comedy hula routine. She was a she was also a singer and an actress. She was in Blue Hawaii. Um, she was born Clarissa Hailey, and then she went by the nickname Clara. Hilo Hattie was her stage name. And there's also Hilo Hattie retail stores that sell Hawaiian-themed merchandise in Hawaii. I've been to their website. It's marvelous. The, everything is just absolutely fantastic, but it has the most marvelous collection of moo-moos. And I need them. And I need to live in Hawaii so I can wear them all the time. So I noticed an interesting pattern with our guest stars in this episode. Just about everybody was in an episode of The Twilight Zone at some point. Uh, Simon Oakland was in two episodes. He was in uh, 30 Fathom Grave and R the Rip Van Winkle Caper. Milton Seltzer was a, he played Wolford Harper in the Masks episode, which is like one of my all-time favorite Twilight Zone episodes, partly because Virginia Gregg is in it and I absolutely love her. And she has been in, in everything. However, she somehow managed to avoid being on Hawaii Five-0, and I am forever sad about this. Uh, Ann Barton was in the... She was Myra Brand in The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. And Jean Bates was Ethel Hollis in It's a Good Life. So that's Strangers in Our Own Land. It's a nice ride of an episode. You are entertained throughout. You're on the hook all the way through. You're not going to regret watching this one. Look at that. One day we'll be strangers in our own land. And so concludes the second episode of Bookum Dano. I hope we all learned a valuable lesson about meeting strange men on cruise ships and then later giving them money after a whirlwind courtship. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that at kikiwritesabout.com. It's not only the home base for Bookum Dano, but it's also the home base for everything that is me. And for you brave souls, you can always follow me on Twitter at kikiwrites. Thanks for listening, and remember, you don't have to cop to a murder that you didn't commit just to be somebody. You already are somebody. Somebody great. Until next time, aloha. <laughs>